The Sobe Art Foundation and the National Gallery of Canada are thrilled to announce the nominees for the 2021 Sobe Art Award. The Sobeys is Canada's most prestigious contemporary art prize, supporting visual artists from across the country and bringing national and international attention to their work. Selected from a record-breaking 283 submissions, this year's long list represents artistic voices from Canada's five geographical regions, Atlantic, Quebec, Ontario, Prairies and North, and West Coast and Yukon. Nominations were carefully considered by an independent jury, and in all, $400,000 will be distributed, with the five shortlisted artists featured in an exhibition at the gallery this fall. Visit gallery.ca to learn about this year's 25 outstanding long-listed artists and listen for further announcements here about the shortlist in June and the winner in December 2021. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Scott. Oh, my wall just made a noise. Let's try this again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Welcome to the podcast, Sky. Indeed, and to you. It's always a pleasure to be here. I would love for you to tell me about who you interviewed this week. Yeah, Nora and Khan. Uh, Nora is a friend, uh, a writer I admire, um, a critic who writes frequently on issues to do with um, emerging tech culture and digital visual culture, the philosophy thereof, et cetera, the practical realities of it. And um and also sort of around her own positionality within the milieu, like as a woman of color, um, she, she cuts a rare profile. Actually, in this conversation, not to jump ahead too much, but there is this shocking moment where she she describes how if she ever comes into or often when she comes into contact with the people that she knows from her sort of online avatar space, they're shocked that she's a woman. Um, there's just this like immediate, you know, like scrambled, scrambling of the, the kind of codification by which like that work is done. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, does that ever happen to you? Do you find that, that people are shocked that you are who you are? No, but I get comments on my physicality, like, oh, I didn't expect you to look this way because your voice is this other thing, which I've never known what to do with. How about you? I'm often confused for an elderly man. (laughs) (laughs) That checks out. (laughs) I guess my name could be like Laurent. And something about, I remember when somebody was like, but you're so bossy in your emails. (laughs) Not bossy, I'm the boss. (laughs) (laughs) Next. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I can imagine like it's a completely different kettle of fish in the in the tech world. Um, yeah. Such a misogynistic and male male dominated field. Yeah, and actually, if, for those uh, interested listeners, you can go back and listen to her in conversation with Mike Peppy uh, for oh. the Momus podcast. I think it was our first season uh, or second season, maybe. And they're yeah two of the leading sort of tech and art critics um, kind of getting into the ramifications of working in that space. 
Yeah. So just to get back to this brief sketch uh, of her biography, she's a professor at RISD in digital and media, teaches tech criticism, critical theory, and does a lot of mentoring, something for which I've always um, had a lot of respect. She's also a noted curator. She was the inaugural curator at The Shed in 2020, uh, doing a critically lauded exhibition called Manual Override, and has a book with the Brooklyn Rail, um, in addition to, uh, in the near future, I think, Art Metropole. Um, mm. And she's currently an editor in residence at Topical Cream. So in a thousand, you know, in addition to a thousand <laughs> other things, like this is one of the busier people I have the privilege of talking to from time to time. What astonishes me though, is she writes like she thinks, like she speaks, which is she creates a lot of space. Mm. Mm. That manual override show was amazing. There was a, the inclusion of Lynn Hirschman Leeson and making new work with her was really, really exciting. Um, but I understand. So Nora also, yeah, on top of all of these millions of things you've just listed, she also writes for Art in America, Flash Art, Moose, Four Columns, Rhizome, The Village Voice. It's a lot of ground to cover. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how you two first met. Right. Uh, well, I was in New York uh, launching our Momus anthology back in 2017, 2018. And through an artist friend, I was invited to a salon taking place in a loft in Soho. The sentence that makes me hate myself. <laughs> so let's move away from it quickly. I quit. So Nora was there. She was um, leading a small panel of artists. They were like sitting on a sofa. It was it was a really beautiful and relaxed atmosphere to have a conversation around some of these issues of like uh, identity and and choosing an avatar for yourself in order to operate more fluidly in the world of social media and tech criticism. Anyway, so I remember I I sat on the ground sort of near her feet. And this was my first sort of introduction to her, her work um, was was watching her kind of command this panel with, I thought, incisive, but as I say, like a real um, built in space. Uh, for the criticality of her mind. She was deeply knowledgeable, but also just mesmeric in how um, she built that space around her own thinking in in action. Mm -hmm. And so afterwards, I had brought my mom, by the way, which was also kind of cute. My mom (laughs) sort of (laughs) tucked in the back of this loft. And it was like very memorably one of those moments where I was proud and not sort of defensive or embarrassed about the way the contemporary art world was showing up in right. her, you know, to her lens. But then, of course, like I didn't have the guts to introduce myself to Nora afterwards. It took a little while for us to connect over, over email. And we've started to have some conversations that have kind of spanned that digital space, but also manifested in beautiful dinner parties in Toronto, um, often around sort of the, the barriers to access for women of color in criticism and some of the strategies for um, moving around those impasses and harnessing uh, a confidence of voice. It's funny to think that you are embarrassed of contemporary art for your mother. I think that the usual thing would be to be embarrassed of your mom at a contemporary art party, right? (laughs) But you're actually embarrassed. You're like... Embarrassed that your mom has to see this. <laughs> I've never thought about that before. Well, my mom's amazing, you know. So yes, yeah, that's part of it. That Terry, really tips the scale. Shout scans. out to Terry. <laughs> shout out to Terry. 
Yeah. So you've had this history with her and she publishes prolifically. And I wonder why you wanted to talk particularly about this piece. Right. So I received the inaugural issue of a, a obviously new publication called March, which uh, is wonderful. It's coming out of St. Louis. Um, some editors I admire, James McNally and Sarita Hun. Uh, and the cover looks like the first issue of October. Mm. Um, for those art history buffs, that very classic template down to the font, that particular streak of red. Um, and there was Nora's name on the cover shining up at me and the title of her text, Dark Study, Within, Below and Alongside. And I fell into that piece that same evening I received the copy and it just was the darkest, densest time. It was January. Um, yeah. You know, we can all go there in our minds and remember what that was. Uh, and it felt like coming up for air, this piece. It, it's around art education, um, I guess nominally, but but it's also perhaps the most personal text of hers I've ever read. I, I don't think she's gone to such a vulnerable place before with her own history of growing up as an immigrant's daughter in, um, by all accounts, a traumatic household, and still pulling herself up in that real bootstrap sort of fashion that for so long has been sort of at the center of a meritocracy myth yeah. um, uh, in order to study and, as she says, um, survive. I was really struck the, the way that the piece starts. She talks about her friend, Mary, who tells her, no matter what, keep your mental space. And I feel like mm -hmm. there's a sentiment that uh, Nora shares about Mary later on that echoes a lot of the way that I feel about this podcast, actually. <laughs> Nora says about Mary, I felt some regret that we did not talk about writing, <laughs> but mostly I felt gratitude that we had talked so much about how to go on. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I really identified with that idea of school as a way to go on, like school as a way to access a life that you may not be born with access to. But there's also the thing that I think some people learn, that which is that, uh, as she says, a school doesn't teach you how to survive as a writer or an artist or a person. There is this persevering quality in the very fact of Nora publishing this text in the midst of a year of manifold yes. crises, manifold emergencies for bodies of color, for art education, and of course they intersect. And this yes. is her somehow summoning the ability to scale a great height and look over a fractured landscape and seek out a visible horizon line, which to me, I mean, where she found the space, as I say, like, never mind, you know, clarity. Yeah. <clears throat> Truly astonishing. Yeah, I agree completely. Let's throw it to her. This is Nora Khan reading excerpts from Dark Study, Within, Below, and Alongside, published in March in October 2020. Dark Study, Within, Below, and Alongside. I recently learned that a writer, Mary, who was a year below me in graduate school, passed away almost four years ago. Mary was full of fire. She was 20 or 30 years older than all of us in the fiction program. She had written an acclaimed novel before she arrived. Some years ago, she gave me a card with a joke about marriage and independence. In it, she wrote, keep writing, don't marry, or get a PhD, or get a job that lets you write. No matter what, 
Keep your mental space. I kept the card. It was valuable advice. That is the part on keeping mental space. Mary had taught me about maintenance and longevity. I once visited her apartment in Iowa City, still packed boxes and an elliptical machine. She maintained and endured. She told stories of her toil, riding through a bad marriage and a divorce while running a farm, while working in universities as an administrator, all the while carrying a great talent. I asked her how she survived without connections or influence, without a set path or model, as I went my own way without a model. After I read her obituary, I read her second novel about the brutal lives of German immigrants on the Bohemian Flats along the Mississippi River. I felt some regret that we did not talk about writing, but I mostly felt gratitude that we had talked so much about how to go on. How to go on. School was always a way to go on, to find a way out and through. My relationship to schooling, to education, to study, is both one of hope and sadness still beyond even my ken. I can summarize. It was all important, life and death, for an immigrant's daughter to go to school when her parents gave up everything, not just home, to themselves go to school, and then for her to do the same. It may read as overly dramatic, but that's what it was. To read and absorb everything, not just to learn how to write a paper, but how to think, how to find a way out. School was a stand-in for everything good that we didn't practice with each other. You could teach yourself into a better life, reach down to those bootstraps and pull and pull. But performing unimpeachable success wears you down over time. Maybe that striving and competitiveness carries over to a creative practice. Still, one day, the striving stops working, stops being useful. The cost of the meritocracy myth and of denial is so high, devastating. You suddenly don't move. A wall goes up. No key works. There's no door. At this point, one finds just how much the schooling didn't really teach one to survive as an artist or writer or as a person. No matter how hard you worked as a woman, for instance, someone would always say you don't know what you do know. On Twitter, I sometimes read accounts of women computer scientists who are essential to the design of artificial intelligence. They list all the times men question their expertise at each point of their career. Is there a course in school, not just feminist theory, that teaches you, yes, you can master this very course material, even become a pathbreaker, but someone will, like clockwork, tell you that you don't know what you do know? Is there a lesson plan on what to do when you are gaslit into thinking you don't know what you have assiduously learned? A module on how to go on from there. Women know how misogyny infects beautiful, pure spaces of learning. Students of color know how knowledge is gatekept, what the preferences for a specific style of conceptual work really means. We know how our delight, our joy, our play is sidetracked taken off-road by these delightful games of proving ourselves, by a brutal evaluative system that pins our worth to our continuous output in one register, one tone. 
Even as one excels in school, the mess of one's life and history tends to roll and crash through the nice, clean picture. Even as doing well in school kept us from a life of squalor without access, I creep along years later, picking through clues in the ruins of my mind for what was lost. One thing my family could not account for was just how trauma builds up over time in the body. So looking at the wreckage, I think, it's some miracle to get out with words and some of one's mind intact. And when I do find the words, my voice continues on, not for me, but for those behind. What I mean is, I know in my bones how many people go to school and universities to escape familial expectations and forge their own way. For how many art school, especially, is a massive personal risk. And how many might never say a word of any of this in a class. The classroom, a simulation of some kind of start over. In the university, last words, Stefano Harney and Fred Moten speak of the critical intellectual, how they labor on in isolation faced with an impossible question, namely, quote, how much of the academy's libidinal political economy is predicated on the fantasy of a livable individual intellectual life, end quote. You will not often hear in an MFA that an intellectual life will most likely be unlivable in our economic system. To speak on the difficulty seems obscene against the grain of a neoliberal gospel. If you want it, you'll get it. That's the end point of the story of mastery, discipline, monastic training. There's no allowance for the other ways a life as an artist, as a thinker, as a writer, as a person without many resources, might look. My work is forever captured and distributed, given and taken away. Though, quote, the university regulates certain kinds of theoretical and empirical, intellectual and sensual study, end quote, as Moten and Arnie add, one can also count on the university not noticing sensual theoretical study at all. Every effort to unlearn becomes a rabbit hole. A little digging shows the lessons of mastery, control, ownership pervades all our creative work. My own MFA model was of men fighting each other in turf wars. Mastery was everything. Before, it was weaponized in the colonial classrooms. The punishment, the military discipline, the crushing exams, the triumph through them. I watched this reverence for discipline and fear show up in my life, from one grandfather being a feared headmaster of a high school to another grandfather tending to remote peoples in the Chittagong Hill tracks as a doctor. There are many echoes and parallels. Their British colonial classrooms evolved into many of the classrooms of today. Internalized narratives of improvement of desperate life possibilities began decades before I was born. I gather their stories of learning to learn how I learned to know. Collective thinking means we would, as teachers, let go of ego, of certainty, of holding the sole answer. Questioning what we name as civilization allows for wildly different approaches to history from outside the perspective of the state. We barely know what we don't know. We might catch each time we tend to dismiss and devalue amateur knowledge and labor produced outside schools. 
What are narratives of learning that do not stress improvement, self-betterment, an imperative to be a better worker, cultural producer, citizen? The production of the state is a narrative mode in which we move from stateless to in-state, unlearned to learned, uneducated to educated. I want to disappear as a scholar, a writer, a thinker, a professor. I want to divest myself of these terms of naming. I write through disappearances and dissolution. Remembering the outside, I could better attune to the classroom's shifting dynamics, its unequal labor, its factions, its orientation. I can bring the ongoing violent history around and deep in the school's foundations to the surface. As we all, teachers, essay to find new modes of being together virtually, we must destabilize the rigged setup of teaching. These spaces are communal, but how and for who? How is difference negotiated within that communal space? And how do we break down the programmed ethics of ruthless individualism that make the communal impossible? A classroom itself should have an active theory of change. The instructor works to actively destroy an archaic relationship with students. They move with the times. They let their experiences and life outside help them question their role inside. We start to hang out and gather to make sure we aren't losing it. We encourage each other. We spend time discussing what happens within these walls. We linger in a field alongside, pacing, running our hands along the walls, thinking about who we'd be if we were totally taken in by the university, embraced, elevated in it, or if the work in there is really needed for the work out here. A space alongside where students faced with making work in a precarious economy, an enormous personal cost, can zoom out to see the stakes of their art practice. Alongside, the vision of a solitary genius honing their craft alone seems untenable. The artist's life, a fantasy embedded in intellectual separation. We move alongside these inner rooms because alongside is where our criticism helps turn us spiritually against the institution. Art students seek a bigger context and framework for their work than the art world. Now coming full circle into these virtual rooms, there's an opportunity to study differently. We could pretend like this is the way it's always been, that we've always been in these rooms. And we could claim we're the first of our kind in these spaces we could perpetuate the myth of being frontiers people. Or what if we begin with the real stories of each person in the room? What if we abolished any notion of neutrality and refuse any claim to apolitical purity of education being a separate concern from how we live now? We might speak on the friction and static of the space, its inequities before we even begin. We might refuse to keep telling the story of single masters and visionaries winning history, magic heroes. We might take up instead the potential of unlearning and undo the desire to level others as we were leveled. The long game, the long view. Maybe the school goes on for a decade, for 20 years, and you never graduate. Art school as a space we talk about art Yes, but also commune together, 
discuss the present, our solidarities. Class is where we create a shared politics that refuses conditions of our own degradation. How are you sitting with this text right now, just on first impression? I haven't read this text aloud, and it reminds me of the days and times when I would read what I wrote aloud. This it feels very, um, the material for it comes out of conversations I've had with others, but written down on the page feels very much from like in my mind, like some deep meditative place, but I haven't had the chance to share it or, or speak it out loud in this way. So it seems almost, yeah, I'm having a moment of it seeming, I know, I recognize my voice, but it feels like a collective voice or it feels like many people's ideas and conversations over right. the last year coming together. So it's quite strange, actually, <laughs> in a good way and like a, in an interesting way. Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, ask after the decision to publish with March, which is a journal of art and strategy um, inaugural issue that you've published this in. And I, I guess I want to better understand sort of the decision before we get into the text itself for its context. Um, mm. How did you decide to go with a print publisher, an independent publisher, all of these things? Sure. Uh, so about a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago now, with this last year behind us, I met James McNally, um, who is the head of the Luminary in St. Louis. And I had gone out for the Luminary's um, triennial called Counterpublic, which was a fantastic arts festival, which in which, um, you know, pieces were held like all along Cherokee Street and St. Louis. So you had work in, you know, uh, convenience stores, work in like auto body shops, work that was in all of these storefronts as you walked up and down the street. And it was amazing experience of art in public space or art and commercial lived everyday space. And mm. I was talking to James at the time about their work through um, as a critic and as an art critic for a long time. And we were just discussing the need for al alternative spaces that can support a strategic conception of criticism. And they had the foundations of March bubbling up at the time. And then we kept in touch over the year in the interim and I started to read more of their work and really admire who they were as an editor and as a person who creates a lot of space for criticism that flows between genres. That's you know, part memoir, part theory, um, that's political, that's unafraid to be political or un mm -hmm. unabashedly political. And so I ran across the, um, the mission statement of March, which they had up online, you know, for a few months before as they were commissioning and pulling work together. And as RISD was going online and there was a lot of activism and that was both faculty led, but primarily student led about this transition online. A lot of my writing at the time was starting to circle, you know, around this transition. And as I was, I found my role as a critic was to listen to my students and also listen to other part-time faculty within the institution and other art and design schools. And since all of these conversations started to, you know, kind of converge on the idea of what an alternative pedagogical space could be, 
I started to look at, um, you know, March's mission or mandate as a new journal to create space for criticism that was unabashedly political as like a kind of perfect fit for this piece. Mm -hmm. And also James commissioned me to, to, <laughs> to write about, um, to write about these ideas. And so it fit well, but it had started a long time before, which I've really started to value in relationships right. with editors to see their work outside of just the editorial role, which can sometimes be a little, you know, distant in the Google Doc. So I'm, I'm preferring to see how people work out in the world and then um, work on writing with them. Right. That's that's great to to have a sense of sort of the inspiration for this um, as as one that happened in conversation and um, very specifically with this editorial team. Mm -hmm. um, you you sort of launched the the piece with a question that usually we find later how to go on, and so I would love to just get a sense too of how did you know where to start this? I mean, you hook it through a letter that was left to you by a late friend, Mary, and. Was it always clear to you that that was the launching point or did you struggle with the decision to begin with a question, as I say, that most most would leave till a later point in a in a narrative? <laughs> yes, I think I would also usually end with that question or at least have it like at some sort of like climatic, climactic building point within within the text. I usually find myself uh, indulging in the funnel problem when drafting. So I'll write 10 pages and then you know, some of the good stuff is at the very end and I find myself converting the whole piece. And as this year has, you know, felt like a lot of inversion and topsy-turviness, I think my writing has also taken that on as well. So oh. material I would usually leave until then. I wanted to get to the urgent points first. And right. this question of how do we get through this year? How do we get through this pandemic? How do we get through school online and a pandemic? And all of these like boiling frustrations that were bubbling and swirling in so many ways in and around the institution, kept coming to some variation of that question from students, from other faculty, from other artists, from other writers, is how, how does one go on? And even if it wasn't phrased quite as quite like that, it made me think back as to one's creative practice, all of the costs <laughs> that one may or may not have undertaken over the past, you know, 10 or so years. There's a lot of reflection at the turning point of the pandemic this time last year. But how did mm -hmm. I get through similar situations of stress, maybe not identical, but, but different versions of crisis and different versions of stress in the past? And how did I get through those moments? How did I move on without, you know, a lot of community or write through isolation or write without a lot of models before? And the more I started to bring this into a class on theory I was teaching at RISD and another class on tech criticism, we started to have these conversations of, you know, what about this moment is very similar uh, emotionally or mentally or psychologically to other moments of crisis in our lives, depending on where we're coming from in society. And for my, for many of my students who you know, either are coming from an immigrant background or are existing in many different intersections of conflicting privilege and disadvantage. This question of like ongoing crisis and trying to make art in a country that's hostile to it, uh, you know, it, it, it started to connect, like patterns started to connect and we started to talk about, you know, systemic issues, 
system systemic issues within the art world, within the school we were in, within institutions, within capitalism, as critiques that everyone had had um, for a long time, and also methods of maintenance and sustaining and living to make a creative practice as issues everyone had been grappling with in in our in our in my classes at least for a long time. So the question of how to go on, what became sort of a frame to think of like how have we gone on? Or how have we dealt before? And it helped lighten the feeling of the pandemic as this new crisis, but instead as an expression of many crises that had been boiling and tipping. I mean, it strikes me that you're writing about something that people rarely do, which you put plainly and potently as saving your life. But I'm also just wondering, like, how do you even harness the focus and time in a year like this, especially to ask the question, how do we go on? And I can I can imagine that using the personal narrative as as a through line might have helped, or at least the excuse that allowed this writing to happen. But I guess I want I want a sense of you know how do you carve the space and how do you find the perspective in a crisis to write from the cliff's edge? It's a really great. Question. I love. I love how that is phrased. I think through this grappling with other teachers and students of like what it means to be in an MFA program, for example, which which we, you know, were either working within or learning within, led to the bigger question of like what is art and for us right now? Why do we continue on with this right now? And what are the different reasons for producing art or engaging in art practice that have nothing to do with um, legibility or success or fame or being in a gallery or in a museum? That there is something deeper that brought us to creative practice, whether writing or criticism or art making, that had something to do with experiences that we had had in our past, formative moments. Um, So I teach thesis writing in my department, Digital Plus Media. And a lot of the work that we do is mining early formative moments for when a person, for when a student felt pulled to an artistic practice or to an experimental practice. And frequently the stories around how they knew or intuited that that was a direction that they would go. And it's usually like a very spiritual or like wordless impulse that pulled them. And it's strong enough and powerful enough to catalyze and move one over many years. And I think in at the turning at this time last year, I think a lot of people were really thinking hard about how can I continue this <laughs> practice that is like, you know, either financially bankrupting me or, you know, emotionally bankrupting me in different ways. And and part of that persistence came from understanding it as a form of survival for myself. Like I rarely write about myself in part because of, of, you know, systemic (laughs) reasons that I talk about in this essay about my first experiences in in a writing MFA and like the expectation or demand to write about one's background or one's history, which I have understood over time was something that I wanted to come to on my own. And so I wanted to explore my interests and, whether that's in technology or other spaces where 
as I was reading in the excerpt, you know, you might be told many times you're not supposed to be writing about those things or in very subtle ways that maybe you should be writing about something else. And partly because I'm stubborn, <laughs> but, uh, but also partly because there was a sense of modeling or the capacity to think about how to create new models for one's life outside of these, you know, like right. tattered ruins that was really rooted within the philosophy of technology, like of software, the ability to like recreate a world or reprogram or remake a space with different inputs and different rules mm. is core to how I think about systems, systems of any kind, whether technological mm -hmm. or social or cultural. And so there was a driving metaphor there that was a way for me to model myself out of an untenable situation, the situation of most first-generation immigrants mm -hmm. with a similar demographic background. Um, you're working very, very hard to get the absolute, you know, bare minimum of stability, but you also learn a lot in that about how to make a model where there was none before. And right. so I guess all of these... All of these methods sort of collapse one atop the other. And the pandemic, I think, really for sure put a lot of that into focus. It's like I've had resources and now it's time to like surface them and give name to them so mm -hmm. I can actually move forward and understand like my future in relation to like my past. And I think that's a big that's a big part of this essay is, you know, in articulating these sort of buried narratives that one, you know, keeps like close to the chest and like put words to them, you actually come up with a kind of like manual or model for how to move forward. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a hopeful act at, at the end, even if it sounds quite extreme, but I think it's um, when you look at one's, when you look at your own history, it, it, it's actually, it was necessary. It was mm -hmm. essential. And it's also something others, other women before me have been practicing in, in many different ways. It is an extension for me lately on a conversation that that was maybe erupting about four or five years ago around the personal essay mm. and sort of a, a high watermark, especially with a certain kind of writer overtelling mm. their personal journey or overexposing, perhaps making themselves an instrument um, in a way that that bled power. Um, I remember a piece by Gia Tolentino in 2017, kind mm. of, you know, hitting a gong around the personal essay boom mm -hmm. being over. But what's interesting is, you know, four or five years later, we've got um, any number of emergencies, as you, as you point to, that uh, require, I think, personal storytelling to navigate. And certainly in a moment of, like, tremendous institutional distrust, uh, are their own pathfinding. Um, I mean, as you say, you're, you're rewriting or introducing kind of code breakers by doing such a thing because it, it pulls um, the power back into your own voice and doesn't let it seed. Mm. Um, but having said that, I mean, certainly as a publisher right now, it's a tricky needle to thread. I, we have a brilliant editor, Rahel Ama, the other day, who, who said, we have to be careful not to become the XO Jane of the art world, <laughs> because we have seen such an influx of, mm. of these kinds of personally rooted narratives uh, coming through, especially from women of color. Um, so I, I wanted just to, to prod at that a bit more with you as a genre development, or as you say, as a kind of um, a method for moving around or underneath 
Mm -hmm. um, that which has been insisted on. I think of this question in terms of a hierarchy of voices and a hierarchy of maybe, maybe a hierarchy is not the right word, but a multiplicity of voices and a multiplicity of audiences. So I, I think of myself as having a voice for my close friends and people I trust. I have a voice for a professional audience. I have a voice for, Mm. um, you know, an intimate poetry reading of, of, you know, writers that, you know, I appreciate and respect. And then I have a voice for a critical essay or a personal essay. And I always think of the personal as coming through the abstract, or I've always thought of writing abstractly about systems or memory or um, Mm. the things that I, that I spent, tend to spend time on, um, you know, work at the intersection of art and technology. I was, I really didn't want to use that phrase, but I think it's, it's still a very funny phrase to, to use. Whatever that term has come to mean, I found ways to like sneak in the personal mm. or does the personal for me is sublimated through um, the like a grappling with systems or the abstract. But I think this year particularly, and maybe always before as a writer and as a critic with institutional spaces, the primary crises come about this treatment of all students as coming from the same background or this mm-hmm. idea of like the universal student or the universal consumer or the universal user that, mm-hmm. that these ideas of, you know, that we bleed our, or we empty ourselves of our backgrounds when we come into an institutional space like the classroom mm-hmm. is so patently untrue. And when you can see into people's homes or you see students in their childhood bedrooms and you see their parents weaving in and out of, you know, their calls that the institution is very far away. And the embodied reality of everyone in the midst of their lives, this kind of unearned glimpse that one gets becomes you know, very apparent. So in that turn, it becomes the, the, the like intensity of our lives across difference becomes apparent. And even, you know, we're reading Audre Lorde in my theory class as, you know, the school is going fully onto Zoom. We're thinking about like the master schools and the master's house as, you know, Lots and art, lots of art and design schools and lots of universities are insisting, you know, on radical imagination or all of us pulling through together and using, you know, very, very polished, uh, very polished and very intentional language to put the responsibility of the pandemic on everyone individually rather than on the Absolutely. systems and institutions. And so I find, uh, you know, close reading this kind of institutional language brings one around to the like imperative and the necessity of speaking from speaking from just the reality of the personal. But but to to your point on Gio Tolentino's essay in 2017 and critiques of um, indulging in, in the personal, I don't think I feel one uh, very strongly against or for it. I think mm. the reason that I've always felt hesitant is because of the way that one is read as a result. The reader determines who and how one speaks and how one writes. And for me personally, I've always felt that it will take a long time to find the right way to write about oneself, to write about trauma, to write about, um, you know, extremely painful memories of 
you know, growing up as the only Bangladeshi for who knows how many miles in like suburban Virginia, it's not a story that others have not told way better than I can tell. It's, it's more that like the dimensionality of my specific version of that story, I haven't found a way to make it resonate except through teaching, except through reflecting students like experiences back to them through the interpersonal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still working at my position on it, but I, I do think mm. a, a large part of why writers of color often hesitate or have a lot of thoughts about how to like present themselves is because of this like double or triple consciousness one has already as uh, an othered person in, in the U S right. where we insist on like, we like the culture insists on a gospel of, of equity when it's patently not the case. And so that bleeds into like how we write about ourselves and mm -hmm. who we present our true experiences to and in what context. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's an ongoing, ongoing struggle and debate. I think there's a, an offshoot of this that's worth exploring as well in terms of how that kind of storytelling gets edited um, mm. I, I am increasingly thinking about the power that editors wield and a sort of unspoken power as well. I mean, it's often a, a position that we take for granted as being baked into most um, publishing houses or publishing institutions. And we don't think much about, well, how did that person get there? What training did they receive? What kind of sensitivity or perspectival breadth do they have in that role? Um, this is a year for, you know, re- upping those questions, certainly. And I wanted to get a sense of not just what it was like to be edited in this case, but generally some of your experiences around protecting that line for yourself. Mm. Um, what needs to be said that is, in fact, not up for debate, um, whether or, or even syntactical choices or um, tense choices mm -hmm. that increasingly I think we need to lay down our rigor around, mm -hmm. um, whether it's the passive voice, for instance, mm -hmm. or or even just the Oxford comma. So I would, I would just love to know, you know, what's your experience been in terms of being edited when it's very vulnerable material like this? It's a great question. I, I think I usually tend to weave the personal into my writing when I truly trust an editor to be able to have a productive conversation around what is working or not working. And as an editor myself, I know that when I am working with sensitive material, personal material, or, you know, it's coming up in like thesis writing, for example, in people's books. It's my responsibility as an editor to learn and go and educate myself and do the research and do all of the work I can to be able mm. to give constructive feedback and to engage in a dialogue if there is a moment of misunderstanding and be, be prepared for it. And so when I can sense that will happen with an editor, I tend to include more and it's taken like many years to get to this point for a long time. My personal essays were like hidden on my website and people would find them by accident. Like I had no idea you ever wrote anything about you. I didn't know any of these things about you. <laughs> and I've had a lot of folks I've met who had read, you know, some writing about AI, for example, which I've written about for a long time, who had no idea it was a woman. So like all these interesting or wow. people thought that I was taller because of like my, my, the voice that comes through some of my criticism, which wow. are all just like very funny telling responses. Yeah. Like 
people not being able to locate you. And I've really enjoyed that. Uh, and I think I've uh -huh. always been really vague about the personal, even in this essay, I feel I'm intentionally being quite vague mm -hmm. and not naming specific experiences. Mm -hmm. So there's like a shielding and um, intentional opacity around it. So I'm speaking for myself. And so others who might recognize it, we might be able to meet in another space where we talk further. So they're kind of like beacons mm -hmm. or signals to others to have a conversation like off the page or in mm -hmm. maybe even person. And, but I'm, I, I'm very much thinking about what kind of editorial conversation will come about and then actually edit things down to create like multiple layers of, of shielding. However, I, I also recognize that for writing to feel more true, I'm going to need to find a way to to find a voice that is more open, but I haven't, right. I haven't quite gotten there yet. Right. I mean, onto that, there's a point in the piece, and I can't recall if um, your sort of condensed version for audio includes this, but you, you question uh, our insistence as editors or um, just generally in this publishing moment, our insistence on stakes uh, from the writer. And mm -hmm. I, I would love to just have you, um, expand on that a bit because I, I find myself feeling a bit defensive, like, well, sure, criticism should have stakes, but what is, what is the, the other argument? I think about this a lot when giving feedback is, is when I say, because I think of moments in my MFA or in just different editorial relationships where I've received comments about raising the stakes or clarifying the stakes. And the way I think of that is that it should it should be a relational conversation, meaning between the writer and the editor, and that the writer's stakes may be entirely different from what the editor's stakes are. And the editor's desire to produce stakes or have the stakes be legible is actually directly related to the kind of journal or magazine or website mm -hmm. that they are building as well. And so that shapes that shapes editing even even obliquely, even in the most subtle ways, even if it's like actively being, you know, looked out for. And so you, for me, the critical is personal to this question of, of personal narrative. I think of critique as deeply personal. I think of critique as many critics have written of as a form of adoration or love. I think of it as an expression of self. And so the stakes mm -hmm. for me are, are positioned quite strongly through critique. So when I teach this section, or I think of this in terms of like teaching a claim or how to make an argument or how to establish a position, mm. even in a work of fiction, even in a piece of experimental writing that is flowing between prose and poetry, that there's still a needed position, a critical position or an argument um, being made mm. is interesting because I, I think the, maybe it's not a question of strength, but the, the self-assuredness it takes to even have the space to think one can take a position or make an mm -hmm. argument is that very different for many people. And I think uh, depending on what I've often see teaching is students often don't feel comfortable making a stake or setting one in the ground right. because they feel that they will then have to defend it and then will have to argue for themselves even in making that stake, which is what, you know, art school critique is really built around. It's like, what is your position so you can defend it? And mm -hmm. there is a kind of 
courtroom showdown aspect to it. And so there's a lot of anxiety about making a claim for, for, for me, I I often think as taking a position and, and making an argument, but having a lot of space to be able to pull it out of the ground again when you need to mm-hmm. shift or you need to move based on new information or based on editorial feedback, your position should change and your argu- argument should be refined over time. Or it might split into multiple arguments and claims depending on the moment. Mm-hmm. In a year, mm-hmm. it might change. And so I think stakes that are open to being um, molded or made of different materials than wood, I guess, <laughs> is how I think of taking a position and mm. and also imagining like the entire range of positions on the same on the same subject and holding all mm-hmm. of those at once is um, a kind of critical critical generosity and intelligence yeah I think that's very well said it's interesting because you're talking about this as an educator less as a critic in this moment right mm-hmm. thinking about sort of well what what are we actually asking mm-hmm. um, I think that's that's a nice way to sort of well better than nice. That's an important way to bring this back to its foundations and sort of unmask maybe some lurking problems within yeah the the ubiquity of this demand. Mm. And and also within this essay, since the, the the generative like start of it was looking at institutional briefs and institutional emails like from many different art right. schools in which no position is taken, or there is a kind of roving position, or uh-huh. there's an attitude of care or an attitude of we have this handled or this an attitude of we're tracking, uh, we're tracking the virus and we're taking care of you and put your trust in us. But, and, and especially with the protests last summer around Black Lives Matter, uh, the protests that are ongoing throughout this year, positions are often, uh, you know, there are many, the real position and the question of like, what is the real position of an institutional perspective or an institutional voice becomes and has become a kind of target of critique is like, where do we Mm. find the real position? Is it in the utterances or in the words or in the actions that are happening? And how do you need many people watching and looking and being critical readers at the same time to kind of locate that roving institutional position, which is very Mm. different from what's being stated which is often mm-hmm. like affectless and without stakes to this, this question of stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you can tell us a bit about um, the research you did. Um, I know some of this stemmed from um, erupting dark study, which we should probably mention is, is an online art school that, well, maybe I can let you introduce it. How would, how would you frame this? Yeah, definitely. This, so this essay was originally about the thinking that was unfolding last summer around alternative forms of pedagogy and which was coming out of discussions with many educators about what kind of spaces would we want to teach in and what kind of schools do we imagine in the future. And again, much of this was inspired by student protest around debt, around studio access, around um, losing money in both space. <laughs> and despite their protests, despite these beautifully articulated critical letters, uh, you know, sent to faculty, sent to institutions, published published and designed on amazing websites and that were read by so many people from, from different schools. And so as those, you know, the foundational change that people were hoping for 
see it started to seem much further off and instead um, kind of temporary stopgaps were put in place to assuage or, or make people happy. My experience was started to turn in helping build um, a bit of a foundation for dark study through discussions with two educators, Caitlin Sherry, who's the founder of dark study and artist and educator, Nicole Malouf. And Nicole and I were co-directors and Caitlin was the founder and director of dark study and is the founder and so I'm no longer with the project as we parted ways um, on you know, discussions around equity within a parent-institutional space. And, but I'm thrilled to hear and see that Dark Studies thriving um, in, their, in their first year. But I really value the conversations we had over the past mm -hmm. year, uh, which are really you know, threaded throughout this essay. And this essay is a reflection of those conversations and discussions between uh, the three of us. And so Moten and Harney's notion of the undercommons had always been important for each of us in our teaching, this idea of study, a kind of learning and mutual mm -hmm. and collective learning that happens in institutions that has nothing to do with institution. Mm -hmm. It's the work in the DMs, it's the casual hanging out, it's, you know, mm -hmm. adjuncts voicing their critiques in class to students in ways that are surprising to students. Uh, there, it's both a permanent space in which you come together with others, but it's also transient. And so in moving on from dark study, I think of all of these principles as replicable in any other parent-institutional space. I think of criticism as a parent-institutional space. That's why I often talk about teaching and critique in the same breath. I think of them as paired or twin um, impulses. And so I work through these principles around study, around unlearning, mastery around gathering um, in digital space as a way of thinking about gathering in real space, like choosing, choosing the rules uh, around which we gather or the understanding each person's position clearly and understanding how we work across difference and figure out principles that we want to like gather around. Um, I let them guide me in every space. And so I think of this, looking back at this piece uh, a year later, I think of how this can drive project building and collaboration with like far-flung teams for a long time to come, this, which is just kind of the core of editorial work and teaching and will be for a while. <laughs> so, but I think a lot of the, the strategies in this piece as principles for making spaces of study that will always be needed. As long as institutions are around, the more people will need to commune and spaces alongside to, to get by and to survive until other, you know, replacements can be built. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, this is great. I wanted to get into, at this point, maybe some of the, the language choice and um, the way that the text actually works on you as a reader. Um, and to that end, I, I want to sort of repeat um, uh, sort of the first thing I said to you when I reached out about this piece to invite you to the podcast was that I was amazed by how this was rooted in a theoretical root system, um, pulling, of course, on a very significant mass of research and lived experience, and yet never seemingly crowded. I mean, it really flows. There's... Um, also a resistance to allowing it to abstract, despite the fact that, as you say, um, there are, are personal traumas or experiences that you're glossing. 
And it feels like a text that stands at the height of a ridge that overlooks fractured ground to a visible horizon, sort of as a manifesto might operate, or certainly a mandate. Um, how much of that is to do with establishing an art school as you were, I imagine, endeavoring this text, or how much of that can can stand free? Yeah, thank you, Sky. It was one of the most lovely invitations <laughs> to a, a podcast I've, I've ever received, and I also really appreciated the the way that you read the piece. It helped clarify, as as others generously reading often tends to do, is like it helped mm -hmm. clarify what I was trying to do in the piece. And at first, I saw it as just a way of archiving uh, the the narrative of collective energy that went into the discussions around dark study and into dark study. It was many months of conversation. But then as with a number of pieces I've and a number of essays I've written this year around study and around parent-institutionality, I found myself writing in big lists. And I've, mm -hmm. I've actually, to this question of an argument, I found it very hard to make one single argument that I wanted to carry through with proof. That makes sense. And instead, in thinking about a school, I was thinking about it not not the way that I would if we were still teaching in person. There's something fundamental about teaching online and being together with others virtually that changes or forces one to think about others in relation to oneself in a very different way. You're constantly trying, as in this conversation, I'm imagining you in another room far away to like, you know, feel connected to you as, as we speak. And you're doing that frequently in this, you know, Zoom world we're in. And so I found myself thinking about the collective and the class very differently. My relationship to students as not professor and student, that was less interesting. Me having an answer to anything is less interesting than mm -hmm. admitting I didn't know something. All mm -hmm. of the stories that I've heard and I have personally experienced about ways people have been turned away from a creative path in art school, like, you know, had, I've, I've always felt like acutely and felt are acutely painful for many, so much so that people remember things that happened in their master's 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or people remember things others say that suggest they shouldn't be making work. And mm -hmm. what's more interesting to me is how people decide to ignore that or move past it mm -hmm. or set it aside, especially when it's someone whose opinion you really value or whose work you really rate highly. How you find that deeper motivation that will can help you continue to make or write or work, even if you don't know what you're doing, and especially if you don't know what you're doing, seemed, again, uh, maybe maybe not an active, like conveying methods of survival, but to like reflect back to others that I had gone through the same thing and others that look, you know, like they know what they're doing, still don't know what they're doing and are still figuring it out. Right. I think that's, there's a lot of power in that way more power in, in telling others that you're still figuring it out and muddling your way than mm -hmm. um, having some sort of like career path. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what that means. I, I'm just following my interests and I get bored very easily and I take a lot of, and I make a lot of sacrifices to write about what I'm interested in, but mm. I'm not going to lie about that being difficult and incredibly difficult. And mm. I think that's something we don't talk about in 
art school a lot is how hard it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it does a huge disservice to, to anyone in, who wants to be an artist, who wants to be a critic or writer, is to, mm-hmm. to pretend it's going to be easy. Um, it's essential to like look with a clear eye at the, the road ahead or like the <laughs> bleak landscape ahead um, to think about like how if I really want this and I really want to sustain myself through it, what are the interpersonal networks I'm going to need? Who am I going mm-hmm. to be need to be around? Um, because it's at some at some many points, it's all you have. It's like one person reading far away, telling you to go on. And mm. so, I'm, I think I've lost the question. But no, I really <laughs> admire um, the responsibility and integrity with which you approach education. I, I can only help but think that um, most educators would wait till. They had recovered from the trauma that we're actively enduring and mm-hmm. navigating, that they would wait for a sabbatical year, et cetera, sure. to do the kind of writing that you somehow um, managed to make space for despite it all. I should also say that, you know, I recognize that working through trauma is is an effective trauma. Like working through trauma and, and using work as a way to get through traumatic experiences is something that I learned very early on and mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people in, in like the situation that my family was in learn to work through trauma. There is no other choice. They Mm. were coming from a war, um, or a country that been in a generation that is still grappling with, uh, in wildly traumatic war and Mm -hmm. immigrated and not only had the disjunctive exile, but then all of these memories that like surfaced 30 years later, 40 years later, as they've been trying to like keep it together here. Um, people often don't keep it together and people often are unraveling when you, when things actually look mm. quite nice on the surface. And it's all of that. I think this past year is really activated for me. It's like, you know, I've been training since I was very little to work through, you know, horrible trauma at the same time. I recognize that that is like, you know, not healthy and, needs to be worked on. It's not something that needs to be um, noted and like not mm. celebrated. Like I check that in myself. It's like, this is, this is trauma right now. Right. <laughs> and this right. writing is an effect of that. And this like collective organizing is part of that and is an expression of it. Mm. Um, I personally don't know another way, but I'm, I'm eager to, to figure or model a way out. Right. Yeah. That's well said. Um, maybe as a one of the last main questions I wanted to ask before we move into kind of a rapid round um, series of questions around your writing practice generally, I wanted to get into some of the language choice that I see recurring through this piece. Um, a lot of, um, how would we term these words? Like in, out, up, down, over, under. But more generally, it had me in mind of this job actually that um, I held in Mexico for a year when I was in my early 20s. And I was teaching English to grade five, so nine, 10 year olds. A close friend of mine down there, I made while I was teaching, was teaching kindergarten. And she had for 30 years. And she reflected to me once, and I'll never forget this on how the entire English language, I mean, she's, um, her first language was Spanish. She said the entire English language seems to be predicated on these fluid binaries of in, out, up, down, over, under, on, off. 
And that if you really start to think about that as you're listening to people speak, you'll notice that they're used fairly interchangeably as kind of gestures to action, mm. as you know, the flick of a wrist might operate in conversation rather than these stable um, mm. identifiers. Um, and so Given that, I wanted to understand better your choices. I think as an editor, I'm inclined to kind of shave those down and uh, heighten the action of a sentence and get us to where we're going faster. And again, Mm. this is one of those editorial questions that I'm bumping up against this year with renewed attention and sensitivity because I can recognize that this is not always this is not always the way that we need to be communicating, just mm-hmm. to put it simply. So mm-hmm. anyway, I'll get out of my own way here. I just wanted to 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 kind of peek that and and understand your your choices um, in using some of these these words that we would call in between or kind of the mm. water that carries action. Mm. No, that's a that's a wonderful editorial <laughs> I can I can I feel the editorial knife <laughs> approaching the piece and something I think about to back to your first the last question about how many of these ideas can be carried on or how can they be applied you know outside of the context of um, the thinking about the school is like there is usually like a central visual metaphor that I have for each essay that sometimes is surfaced at the beginning or I imagine, comes through like the process of reading. So even if it's like not articulated, when I say uh, in the title within, below and alongside comes in part from how I imagine Moten and Harney's description of the undercommons. Mm. And I had uh, yesterday, we talked about the undercommons in my theory and artistic research class. And the student who described undercommons as like these side passageways or these like secret trap doors or these like side portals, which I really, really resonated with me. I think of a monolith when I think of what we're moving alongside or below or within all at the same time is this monolith of whatever system we're critiquing, whether it's, you know, late capitalism or the institution or the art school or, you know, supremacy in all its forms study was a way to think of how does one how is one sometimes inside and outside at the same time how is one both in and out at the same time um how does one actually fluidly move between inhabit all of these different metaphorical spaces and physical spaces um at the same time and so I think in like revising this I would make that like image of the monolith more clear, but then I think of like passageways, I think of secret moments we meet others inside of the institution, which is how I think of how, uh, of the undercommons and how Moten and Harney are talking about being both in and not of. And this is the kind of double or split consciousness that, um, you know, women experience or women of color experience um, or BIPOC teachers and students experience within institutions is you're both Mm -hmm. there because you're accepted and you're in the room and you're at the table, but you're also not really because Mm -hmm. of all of the different ways that is demonstrated to one. It's also wayfinding. It's the Mm -hmm. act of building time and space into a text, which of course time and space are on some level formally existent just in the time it requires to read, et cetera. But there is this insistence, I think, or this um, emphasis, I should say, on 
on the temporal aspect of wayfinding via you know the recurrence of words like pull and pull or going on how to go on or out and through mm-hmm. um it slows us down it it helps us walk with you and recognize that this is still a searching party i appreciate that cuz i i also like to think of essays as maybe maybe like essays like this as a little manifesto like but also just mm-hmm. invitations for others to to join one outside like the marble halls for just a little, just a moment or go to the field beyond. I, I really do just have a world in mind of like a, a marble, you know, library museum um, and then like a huge field around and like the wild around that. And mm. we like travel back and forth between mm-hmm. these spaces when thinking about creative practice. So mm. it is an invitation to move below or move alongside um, even for a little bit a small part of the day. Open Studios at the University of Guelph is an annual event showcasing artists in the Studio Art MFA program. This year, you can view their work and listen to pre-recorded discussions online until Saturday, May 8th. Get to know the artists in a series of one-on-one interviews with Robert Enright and three student-organized panels on the topics of beauty, process, and materiality. In addition, students will be available for live virtual studio visits to discuss their work and answer your questions on Friday, May 7th and 8th. To book a studio visit and find more information, please visit www.sofammfa.ca. That is www.sofammfa.ca. Okay. Do you like writing? I love and hate writing. Mm. When do you write? Whenever I can find time and when I'm under a lot of pressure. Mm. Do you use a thesaurus? No. Really? I used a thesaurus a lot in school, but I think... Now I use a thesaurus or like I find synonyms when I just need another word when editing. But while writing, I never, I usually don't. I like, Uh, yeah, I think this would probably come back to how I learned writing. And I had a, um, my thesis uh, advisor at undergrad is a short story writer, novelist named Jamaica Kincaid. mm. And she, uh, a lot of our work was around unlearning bookish words or unlearning bookish styles of writing in Mm. order to write fiction. And so something about using the thesaurus would feel, I think, I think it just got into my head at that point that I would want to speak from my voice first and then edit Mm. with, with that layer if needed. Wow. That's very cool. It gives me the sense that you really do have the world inside of you. (laughs) Everything in reach. Yeah, my head is my head is burning up. <laughs> um, do you delete much as you go, or what is your editing style um, in the process of writing? I tend to write ten to twelve thousand words over the word limit, and then I end up cutting down wow. <laughs> through a massive document where I find the best lines and then reassemble them in a new document, and that becomes the essay. Who do you write for? Oh God. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> That's really hard. I think I write for someone I can have a conversation about, the, even one person I can have a conversation about the piece in the future. And I think of them as an abstract person in the future that I haven't met and maybe will never meet. Mm. But I usually try to write for them, mm -hmm. for someone I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that we can, someone I can have a deep conversation about it with in the future. Mm. Yeah, I like that answer. I haven't heard that before. Um, do you ever write under the influence? Only the influence of coffee. <laughs> uh, do you read or write in other languages? Yes. I think in Bengali and English, I mm. read and write and think about theory and French mm. and often find myself working back and forth between all three languages. Um, and Bengali mm. is really a poetic language. It's the language of a lot of great poetry and song. And so when thinking about like destabilizing binaries, it's a language I think too often, like many, one word can mean five or six different feelings or sentiments. And I think of that dimensionality in language when I come to English, it's like creating mm -hmm. a mood or creating a mm. feeling as much as an argument. Which writer do you emulate the most, either consciously or unconsciously, do you think? I think about Lynn Tillman's work a lot. I mm. think about Jeanette Winterson's work a lot. I mm. think about um, writers who move very fluidly between genres and like wrote through that movement between genres for a long time until someone else gave it a name as a kind of model. And I hear their voices a lot as mm. I write. Um, yeah. And, and I like to think of, and I, and I read a lot of games and tech kind of criticism that does the same thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure I emulate any one person, but I'm definitely have a lot of voices mm. <laughs> in my head as I'm writing. Yeah. On that note, is there anybody you like to read before you write? Hmm. I usually tend to read um, a pastiche or like mishmash of research and fiction and poetry that usually relates to the theme that I'm writing around. So if it's surveillance, then I'll have like 10 different sources around me. Mm -hmm. um, or if it's, you know, about something like schooling, I'll be reading like the text of Kunzi Study Forum, which is mentioned in the essay, Manifestos. Um, we, were, we were looking at like Black Mountain College and um, other manifestos of alternative art schools. And so I'm usually like looking at all of this language and, and trying to situate myself in between all of them. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. at some point I do try to get some distance from other words and then come and, and try to come up with my own. Mm -hmm. And as a last question to you today, um, how do you know when you're done? <laughs> I think when the visual to speak into that visual metaphor, that's usually in, in the piece when it finally comes into view and the picture is sort of set in my mind for the time being until it has to change again is when I know I can file the piece. There has to be some, <laughs> some answer to this or else <laughs> we'd be working in a different profession, but it's never, nobody ever seems very satisfied with what they arrive at. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not satisfied. 
Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. The season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos. We would like to thank Nora N. Khan for her contribution to this season, and a very special thanks to everyone who's supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash or reach out to me about making a one-time contribution. We're grateful for your support, and it makes a crucial difference. This has been episode 31 of Momus the Podcast.